little boy by the name of Johnny and his sister Sally went to visit their grandparents for a week. While they were there, the grandfather gave to Johnny his first slingshot. So Johnny didn't know how to use it. The grandfather gave a quick lesson. And so Johnny went out to the woods behind their house to kind of practice. And practice was not going very good. Everything he went to try to shoot for and aim at, he didn't even come close to hitting. So he came back to the house somewhat frustrated and disappointed. While he was walking there, he saw his grandmother's pet duck. And so Johnny then put out his slingshot, took an aim, threw the stone, hit the duck, the duck died, and Johnny panicked. Didn't know what to do because of all that. Eventually, he grabbed the duck and he hit it in the wood pile. And when he was over and done, he looked up and he saw that his sister Sally had witnessed everything that he had done. Later on, it was lunchtime. They had lunch together. And when it was all over and done, the grandmother said to Sally, Hey, Sally, how about you helping me with the dishes? And Sally said, Oh, Johnny wants to do that. He'd be happy to help you. And then she turned to Johnny and said, Remember the duck. All right. So Johnny washed the dishes. Later on in the day, the grandfather said to the two grandchildren, how about I take the two of you fishing this afternoon while, while, while grandmother makes dinner? And grandma said, that'd be a great thing to do, except Sal, I wanted Sally to stay here to help me make supper as well. And Sally said, oh, we've talked about that. Johnny wants to help you do that. He'll be happy to stay there. And she turned to Johnny and said, remember the duck. And so Johnny stayed and Sally went fishing. And for the next three days, Johnny did not only every chore that his grandparents asked him to do, but he did every chore that his grandparents asked Sally to do as well. And every day it was just eating at him. All this was going on. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. And he went to his grandma and says, Grandma, I killed your duck. I killed your duck, and I'm sorry I did that. The grandmother came and gave him a big hug. And she said, Johnny, I know you did that. I was watching from the window, and I saw everything. I want you to know I love you, and I forgive you. But I also was beginning to wonder how long you were going to let Sally be your slave. And so guilt, shame, and a stained conscience are people that all of us, every one of us, have opportunities to deal with all the time. The preacher of Hebrews has come to the central core of his message not only to the people of that day, but to those of us who are reading today's world. We are now at the central core of all the great things that he has said to remind people in difficult times where to keep your focus. Here's the climax in chapters 9 and 10. Jesus is our sacrifice. And Jesus is the one who removes our guilt, who deals with our shame, and whose unstained conscience can be claimed when we see Jesus as our sacrifice. So let's listen to God's word. 
from Hebrews chapter 9 and also chapter 10. Two different passages, both fairly short. Both have a lot of common things together. The central core of what God has in store. First, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus ensuring eternal redemption. For if the blood of uh, of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. And then from chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing and to the living and trusting of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be in worship. We thank you that you have made the sacrifice for us. That we don't come here this day because we have worked hard, we have merited your favor, we have done those things that will control who you think we are. We come today simply because we know you love us. Help us not to forget this. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. When we are leaving the parking lot today, if as we were walking out the door, if we heard the screeching of the brakes and the clashing of metal upon metal and the shattering of broken glass, we would realize right away there's an accident out on Frankstown Road. And if we would be one of the first ones to rush over there, and if we would see this, here's what we would probably think. If we looked into that window and we saw the passengers and we saw blood that was just flowing all over the place, it would not take a medical degree for any one of us to say, this is really serious. We need to call 911. These folks need help right away and all that's going on. Well, today we are three weeks from Easter. Three weeks from Easter, it talks about a a little bit different than what three weeks from Christmas is. 
When, if we were at Christmas time, this would be the second week of Advent with two more Sundays and then Christmas. So if think about those things. Think about what the second week of Advent is all about. Usually, there's some type of decorations we find in the church. There's a lot of decorations that we find out in the community, in the stores. They've had sales going on now, Christmas sales, for over a month while we get to this point, all right? Every one of us have on our calendar a Christmas party or parties that we've already gone to and have yet to happen down the road. And if we would turn on almost any radio station that plays music, there would be Christmas songs going 24 hours a day. Easter. The decorations in the churches are not nearly what they're like at Christmas. And things that we see out in the community and local stores have nothing that talk about the Christian perspective of Easter as well. I don't know about you, I don't have any Easter parties on my calendar. And the radio stations that I listen to that play music, I haven't heard an Easter song yet. There's something different about these two significant historical events. And I would venture to say the difference is that Easter emphasizes blood. It emphasizes the shedding of blood before there's a celebration of life. And we approach those things in different ways. In the Old Testament, blood is used to describe some fairly negative things. Just a couple of brief things we'll look at. In Genesis chapter 4, when we find the first time of sibling rivalry that rose so that Cain killed Abel, God then comes to Cain asking where his brother is, and, 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 he, and he tries to deny what's going on, and God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. There's guilt. In Isaiah chapter 59, it talks about the, the fallenness of the, of the Israelite nation. It says, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquities. In Ezekiel chapter 3, he warns those who know God, but who refrain from telling those who are lost and eventually will die, that, that the blood of those who died without hearing, that the blood of those who die without hearing are on the hands of the believer. An alternative passage that we find, or, or one that is based upon Hebrews 9 and 10, goes back to Leviticus chapter 16 and 17, which is the story of the, of the tabernacle and the regulations that God described and, and the way that one approaches the tabernacle. And, and a lot of the imagery that we read in 9 and 10 comes from Leviticus chapter 16 and 17. And you can take that later on and read about and see yourself. But you know, in, in those two chapters, I just looked at 11 verses, verses 11 through 22 and verse 16 of, of, of chapter 16 of Leviticus. And in those 11 verses, the word blood was used eight times. Three times the word offering is used. Nine times the word iniquity, sin, or transgressions are used. And six times the word atonement is used. We can't run from the idea 
that in the biblical way of describing our condition, using the word blood, it means the brokenness that we have between God and ourselves. We're like the fictional person who I described in the automobile accident. That spiritually, the blood covers us and we're in serious trouble. It's deep. It goes way down. And it takes a lot, more than what we have, to remove the guilt and the stain in our conscience. But the good news that the preacher says is our God can clean up this mess. Our God can dig deep down. Blood also has a positive connotation in the scriptures. Blood represents life. There's no life without blood, none whatsoever. The shedding of blood, especially when done as a voluntary act, is redemptive and self-giving. Blood is operative in the covenant making and reconciliation, which, which Doug talked about last week in the preacher's sermon as well. Blood brings forgiveness. Blood brings sanctification. Blood brings peace with God. Blood is the foundation of fellowship found with God. In the Old Testament history, and we go back to Leviticus 16 and 17, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, that was the third place that someone had to get into in the tabernacle. It's an elaborate description of what God requires of people. In those days, you just didn't walk into the tabernacle. It wasn't like in a church today where we welcome people, although people are welcome, but you just didn't go in. When you went, you had to take something with you, and it was blood. And on the outside was the first layer, and there was blood required. On the second side layer, a few more could get in, and blood was required, until finally you get to the Holy of Holies, where only one time a year, only one person could come, only if he was bringing the blood of the sacrificed animal who represented the death and covered the death of the high priest and the people of God. God considered the blood of the animal sacrifices sufficient to be ceremonially clean, but way inadequate for covering the guilt of our sins. In, in, in Hebrews 10 11, it says this, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The law prescribed repeated animal sacrifices for sin. The very repetition of that is a built-in testimony that there was an inadequacy of the sacrifices for the covering of our sin. Nothing decisive and once for all happened in the animal sacrifices. If they had perfected the people once for all, they wouldn't have been repeated over and over again. It would have been once and done, but it didn't happen that way. They were ceremonially clean, meaning on the outside. But they were still dead in their sins, deep, deep down. And so how does the preacher propose that we get that deep cleansing that all of us always need. 
He says in chapter 10, verse 12, but when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Notice the contrast between verses 11 and 12 that I read. Notice the differences that are talking about there. It talks about many priests versus one high priest. It's talking about many sacrifices versus one sacrifice of himself. It's talking about repeated offerings versus one offering. And finally, every priest stands daily where Jesus sits at the hand of God. This standing versus sitting is a description of what the preacher wants people to know, to what to keep their focus on and what's happening in their lives. There are three things that we can see there very briefly. When one is sitting, that means your work is done. All of us have had days where we've worked hard all day long. Regardless of what your task was, that you all can recall the account by the end of the day and you're able to say, I can't wait to sit down. Ah. Oh, I'm done. I'm done. And you sit down. The one sacrifice of himself was perfectly complete. Secondly, God satisfied with the sacrifice. He was satisfied with what Jesus was doing and would do and did do on the cross. He showed that satisfaction by, wow, he had him what? Sit at his right hand hand, sitting at his right hand. And thirdly, it tells us Jesus with his father is the sovereign ruler over all the nations. There's a hymn that we sing in the church throughout all, uh, for many, many years called the church's one foundation. The first verse ends with this, with his own blood he bought her, you know this, and for her life, he died. My wife loves to read books, and I'm glad she does because then she can read them for me and tell me about them, and I don't have to read them all. She loves to read these climbing mountains in snowstorms or diving to the depths of the sea, those drama and real life things you get in the Reader Digest that are coming book form. She, she just loves to read about stuff like that, okay? And she loves to read about uh, war situations and how people endured. And, and so she's had this book for a long time. It's called Through the Valley of the Kwai. And it talks that the author was, was an allied uh, uh, commander who was captured by the Japanese and was serving or living or tortured, however you want to describe it, in, in a camp in, in Thailand. And, and here is a story that he tells that actually happened. The day's work had ended. The tools were being counted. When the party was about to be dismissed, the Japanese guard declared that a shovel was missing. He insisted someone had stolen it. He strode up and down in front of the men, ranting and denouncing them for their wickedness, their stupidity, and most unforgivable of all, their ingratitude to the emperor. 
Screaming in broken English, he demanded the guilty one step forward to take his punishment. No one moved. The guard's rage reached a new heights of violence. All die, all die, he shrieked to show that he meant what he said. He pulled back the bolt, put the rifle to his shoulder, and looked down the sights ready to fire at the first man he saw at the end of the line. At that moment, one from the Argyle unit stepped forward, stood stiffly to attention, and said calmly, I did it. The guard unleashed all his whipped up hatred. He kicked the hapless prisoner and beat him with his fist. Still, the Argyle stood rightly at attention. The blood was streaming down his face, but he made no sound. His silence goaded the guard to an excess of rage. He seized his rifle by the barrel and lifted it high over his head. With a final howl, he brought the butt down on the skull of the Argyle, who sank limply to the ground and did not move. Although it was perfectly evident that he was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only when exhausted. The men of the work detail picked up their comrade's body, shouldered their tools, and marched back to camp. When the tolls were counted again at the guardhouse, no shovel was missing. He died for them. He died for them. I read stories like that, and I am moved. I, have, I don't know who that man was. I wasn't alive even when that happened. But when I read stories like that, I, I'm moved. And I suspect most of you are too. But I also wonder this. What about those men that day when they went back to their barracks and they thought of what happened? What were they thinking about? And then to those of them who lived through that hideous and torturous time and made it back to home and lived for many years like Ernest Gordon eventually did, I often wonder, what do they think about that day? What what do they think about their life? How many times do they recall what someone did for them? And how has that changed them? I have mentioned my father several times I've been here. He's still alive, still alert, 92, doing well. Served in the Army in World War II. And and, and at times of Memorial Day and July 4th, that's when people come around him and they call him a hero. And, and he pulled me aside and he said, you know, I, I, I served like I was supposed to do. He goes, I'm not a hero. He said, the heroes were those who died and never came home. And then he told me about his life. He says, think of those who died. I married my sweetheart. I had three children. I had a good job to provide for all that we have. I have grandchildren and great-grandchildren now. 
I have wonderful memories of you boys growing up and are enjoying what you did and family times together. And he said, I had a life that many of them no longer had. Our scriptures help us. We don't ever want to deny that the objective truth and reality of the single offering that Jesus made for us is is the crux of what we stand on. That That is why we are here. That is why we can say that there's no condemnation for us. That's why we can agree with the words of Scripture of what Jesus did on the cross. It, it, it's, it saved us from the penalty and the power and the presence of our sin. But, but our Scriptures tell us even more about the sacrifice. That if we just stop there, okay, we've watched a good thing, we've heard good news, but there's even more that our Scriptures tells us what's going on. If we read in chapter 9, verse 14, the preacher says this, after describing the inadequacy, the inadequacy of, of, of the sacrifice of the goats and the bulls, he then says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal gift offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve our living Lord? And then in a very, very similar statement in in chapter 10, verse 14, for by a single offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, the objectivity of what Jesus did is really, really important for us. And because it is so important and because it's so crucial as far as having the guilt being passed far away from us as the east is from the west, our transgressions are taken away, that the scriptures tell us, because of the objectivity of the death of Jesus Christ as the single offering that when that was over and done, he could sit down at the right hand of God the Father and be the sovereign ruler over all the nations. The objective truth of that is telling us that we have more that we can also have because of that. How much more is available for us? And, and we see that. In chapter 10, at the very end, in 14, it says, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's a combination of different tenses. He has perfected, meaning that death has accomplished what he wants us to have. He has paid the price. The anger and wrath of God has been paid for. And so that single offering says that we now can come into his presence. And then he says, how much more is still available for us? And he talks about being sanctified with the idea of saying, that doesn't mean you and I still don't sin. It doesn't mean that you and I still don't have bad attitudes. It doesn't mean that you and I still don't have bad behavior. But it means that he is processing each day. He wants us to be more and more like the one who we said died for us. And our life is a reflection of how much we worship and love him as well. It's talking about our consciences. And it says he will purify that. He will take the stain of our conscience so that we don't have to be like Johnny and do chore after chore after chore to try to win the favor 
of a grandmother, or even better, of a God. He wants us that. He tells us later on in in, in chapter 10, he says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them down in their minds. And in 9, he says, he'll purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I, I believe he's saying the same thing in both places. It's so important. He's saying, there's more. There is more. And the point of it is, is that the more we try to get it on our own, the more stain we'll have on our conscience. And he says, it's not something that you have to work for. It's something you want to have. He's talking about the motivation of our hearts. He says he's going to change our hearts. He's going to write the law on our hearts and on our minds so that we no longer are the type of people that say, I need, I want, I have to do this. I have to do this to win the favor of God. I have to do this because in reality what we say is that I want to be my own savior. It's not that we have to do that because we think we can compare that to those who do less and God will love us even more. And like Johnny on that day, how many more chores can you do? How much more work is needed? How do we know? And the answer is we don't, and there isn't. There isn't enough. It's impossible to do. And God says, I give it. I give this a change of your heart as my gift to you. Instead of having to do something, you want to do something. Instead of trying to control God's decision whether he loves you or not, you just want to please him for what he's done for you. Instead of saying, I'll work so hard, he will say, I love you. Want to love me. There's another illustration in the book that I think helps us, helps me figure this one out. Incident concerned an Aussie private who'd been caught outside the fence while trying to obtain medicine for one of his sick friends. He was summarily tried and sentenced to death. On the morning set for his execution, he marched cheerfully along between his guards to the parade ground. The Japanese were out in full force to observe the scene. The Aussie was permitted to have his commanding officer and the chaplain in attendance as witnesses. The party came to a halt. The CO and the chaplain were waved to one side. The Aussie was left standing alone. Calmly, he surveyed his executioners. Then he drew a small copy of the New Testament from a pocket of his ragged shorts. He read a passage unhurriedly to himself. His lips moved, but no sound came from him. He finished reading, returned his New Testament to his pocket, looked up, and saw the agitated face of the chaplain. He smiled. 
waved to him and called out. Cheer up, Padre. It isn't as bad as all that. I'll be all right. He nodded to his executioner as a sign that he was ready. Then he knelt down, bent his head toward, forward to expose his neck, and the samurai sword flashed in the sunlight. He wasn't doing that because he had to. He wasn't doing that as a last-ditch effort to win the favor of God or to cleanse a conscience. He did it because, objectively, he had already known that his salvation was perfectly complete in the single offering that never, ever had to be repeated ever, ever again. And in the midst of tremendous torture and filth and death on his last days, he had an unstained conscience that knew simply and solely it was the grace of God who provided the sacrifice. How much more, how much more does God want to provide? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us salvation, the greatest gift of all. And yet we also give thanks that you do not stop there, that you continue to address our hearts and form us and shape us to be more like you each day. And we do that, Lord, in the motive of a heart that is clean because we love you we worship you, and we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.